Aloha! This is Jason from Hawaii. Welcome to a very special episode of the Comics for Fun and Profit podcast. I am interviewing legendary comic book creator, pop culture expert, and historian, Mr. Gary Moondog Kalabono. Gary, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Gary, thank you very much. And I, I have to keep saying this. It, it's an honor. Thank you very much for being on the show. It's an honor because I'm going to go through your list of credentials and your history. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, too. Okay. So, sure. All right. So, you are a comic book collector, dealer, appraiser. You are one of America's biggest comic book and pop culture expert and historian. You have been seen and heard on media outlets such as CNBC, ABC, and WGN Radio. You were the owner of Moondog Comics, now correct me if I'm wrong, from 1978 to 1994, and you had six, six stories during that time. Is that correct? That's right, uh, exactly. And then in 1994, I sold the company to... Uh, a public company, and they in turn uh, expanded it to 21 stores at one point. Wow. Okay, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. Okay, so I'm going to. So, and then 1993, you were the first recipient of the Will Eisner Spirit of Comics Retailing Award. You're, you are a senior pricing advisor to the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide. From 1992 to 1997, you're the CEO of the Chicago Comic Con. 1993, you, Kim Howard Johnson, Larry Martyr started the Moondogs Pop Culture Radio Hour that was on every Saturday morning from 11 a.m. to 12 noon on WCBR. And then you are the you were the owner of the amazing Windy City Collection and the recently the prototype of Action Comic Number One that did not have Superman on the cover and action funnies and more importantly you are a loving husband father and grandfather who dotes on his four-year-old granddaughter did i miss anything or do i need to be corrected <laughs> i think the show's over <laughs> you went ahead you got it all so actually Actually, one other thing I missed was because you also, the comic book bags. You, 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 yeah, comic I, covers, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at this. As, this may be a two-hour episode. I'm going to be blunt and honest with you guys. Um, I'm sorry, Gary. I'm, you know, there may be times where I may have to cut it short because we just got to keep moving because there is so much that you've done. It's incredible. Well, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to spending a couple of hours in memory lane. You know, I want to give a Big thank you to Mr. Larry Horowitz. He contacted Drew, the co-host of the Comics for Fun and Profit podcast, you for our show. So I want to give Larry, thank you very much. Anything else you want to add, Gary? Well, Larry, Larry is a, when he was a teenager, was a customer. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so uh, you know, he, he became uh, a, a very uh, influential uh, person in the Chicago radio and uh, media market. Uh, with his own um, website for years and years. And uh, so Larry and I were chatting uh, once just a few months ago, and I said, you know, I'm doing this Moondog uh, um, buys comics website thing, and, and I could use some help. And so he said, I'll be happy to help. So, that, so that's how Larry joined the team. So, okay, 
So Gary, first off, where can listeners follow you on social media? Like you mentioned your website, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, uh, moondogbuyscomics.com is the, is the website and that's the landing place for if you were an old moondogs customer supplier if you were a uh, an employee an old employee i mean i at one point employed over 100 people so you know we all uh have memories about moondogs and we all uh you know still collect or many of us still collect i think we almost all, probably all do and uh, so, you know, it's a place to come and say what you're doing now and, and letting uh, your, your old, you know, uh, fellow employees know what's going on. But, uh, but, you know, the commercial aspect of the website is there's so many baby boomers now who are downsizing. And I'm 70, so I'm in that same boat. And, um, and people call me all the time and they go, you know, Gary, you sold me these comics 40 years ago and now... You know, I need to uh, I need to sell them. What do I do? Um, and that's that was the that that's what started Moondog buys comics. I, I wanted an easy way to connect with uh, people who are selling their comics, so I can advise them on what to do. I could either buy it outright, buy the collection outright. Um, I could give them their options and say, you know, you don't need me to sell this for you. Just take it over to Heritage or Comic Connect or Comic Link. And, and, and sell it. So, you know, I, I, what I try to do is lay out all the options that someone would have if they have comics for sale. Okay. Gary, I'm going to go a little bit off the cuff here, but it's incredible that the incredible relationship you build with your customers, because like you already said that, you know, you had customers contacting you, hey, you know, Gary, I bought this from you 40 years ago. I mean that that's great that it it sh it shows that you have a you built a relationship with your customer. That's yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Jason, when you know, uh, but it's kind of funny that I I I had a customer call uh, contact me and we got together and I had sold her some really uh, important books back in the late '80s, and she heard that I had passed away, oh. and uh, and and but she found me on Facebook. Uh -huh. So that was kind of like an eye opener. I go, uh oh, I better start, you know, letting people know that I'm still around and I'm <laughs> and, and I'm helping people. Yes. Um, so you know, you can go on MoondogBuysComics.com. Our Facebook page is MoondogBuysComics. Um, the uh, Gary Colabono has a Facebook page. Uh, we're on Twitter. So um, you know, I'm easy to 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 find now, and and I'm and I'm alive and kicking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Gary, like you said, you know, we're going to start walking down memory lane. So we're going to start off. So where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Joliet, Illinois, which is about 60 miles southwest of, of, the, of Chicago. It's a steel mill town. My dad worked in the steel mills for 10 years before he went to work for a, a small grading company. And, um, you know, the, the, it was the typical, you know, it, it, not a suburban kind of life because you know 60 miles you know was a kind of a self-contained uh, little town but you know uh went to school there and all my friends were comic book nuts you know i mean i guess we kind of just gravitated together so started started collecting in grade school uh, got to high school mm -hmm. and you know and the same thing happened and and um you know there's there's an article that was in the high school newspaper. I was doing my own little fanzines back then. It was called Captain Twang. 
And and Captain Twang, you know, uh, started, I'd, I'd make a little uh, mimeograph back in those days, you know, mimeograph comics, and I'd pass them out to everybody, and then guys would like to read them. And, and the next thing I know, the, the school newspaper is doing an article on, you know, weird uh, sophomore with strange hobby <laughs> and um and you know but and i also had like a little business uh, going on at the same time i would i would uh, look in the letters columns for uh at, especially in marvels because they had all the the full address printed yes. <laughs> and, and i would just send off a a, a, a little mimeograph sheet that said i have these extras and they're for sale for like 25 cents or 50 cents each and you know if you got anything to sell me I, i'm looking for this and i'm looking for that and you know and so i was actually buying and selling comics running ads in different fanzines um back in those days in in uh, in 1967 1968. moondog because you can see you know his history because there's a picture of you from 1959 holding up i believe your first comic book if I'm not you know, it's the first comic I ever bought. Okay, first my, comic you bought. I'm sorry. My, 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 my dad would give me a dollar. Um, I mean, when I started buying comics, you know, um, it, I, the Marvel pre-hero, you know, uh, monster books were the were my what really got me into comics. I mean, I read all the comics. I read Archie's. I read Porky Pig. I read Archie's. I read Richie Rich. Uh, Superman, whatever it was around, I read. But mm -hmm. buying buying my first comic, I was we were going on vacation and and uh, up to Wisconsin for a week at a, at a cabin and and there's a picture of us standing outside the cabin and my and my older brother Scott has caught a fish and he's holding it holding it up and my younger brother Alan is looking up in awe at my brother and uh -huh. there i am standing right next to him holding my action comics 245 <laughs> that i had just bought with my own money and i wanted to show everybody i mean that's, how, that's the goofy little kid i was because i loved comics that was the first comic you bought that was in 1959 that's basically two years before fantastic four number one yeah, uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, FF1 is November uh, cover date 61. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, and I bought FF1 because it's, it's, it was just another Marvel monster book when you look at the cover. Yeah. And so there was, you know, it was just a, a normal thing. And then issue two with the scrolls are just more monsters. Mm -hmm. And, and they slowly, of course, evolved into, into a, a real superhero franchise. Mm -hmm. But you know, I mean, buying those early Marvels was just normal for me because even if you had uh, Journey in the Mystery 83, you got the those lava men. I mean, they're just monsters, um, you know. So it, it took a while for the superhero look that we're all familiar with to evolve at, at Marvel. So all those pre-hero monsters, the Kirby Ditko, Don Heck, Dick Ayers, I mean, all that stuff is what led me right into the Marvel superheroes. How did you start your comics during that time? Were you already had the collector mentality or were you like most of us when we started reading comics, you just read it, tossed it aside, you know? No, no, you know, because there was a number on the cover of comics, okay, that, that led 
collectors to want to complete their sets. Nowadays, collecting complete sets isn't as important as it once was. Collect, being a completist was the most important thing. So because there was that number on the cover and I had one, two, three, six, seven, eight, I needed four and five yes. in order to, to, to have a complete collection. So I, I remember I had these boxes, they were called, they were called chicken boxes. And, and you know, that the, the stores would get their chicken delivered to them and they were the perfect size. If you put a little divider card in, it was like two long boxes, two typical white long boxes, but one, one box. So I would, I uh, store all my comics upright in in these uh, little chicken in these big chicken boxes and i found out later that there were other collectors around the country back in those days using these same chicken boxes chuck rosansky from mile high comics talks about using chicken boxes back when he was uh when he was a kid too wow that that is incredible <laughs> i took care of my stuff i took care of my stuff okay you know, I, um i wasn't uh like the crazy kid across the street, Davy Connors. I love Davy. Don't get me wrong, but he—you couldn't touch his stuff. His, uh -huh. You know, he'd come over to our house and play with our stuff and and read my comics, but we couldn't go over in his house and uh -huh. read his comics. So his stuff is really nice. I bet he's got some really valuable stuff to this day. <laughs> <laughs> so in um, nineteen, you already talked about in nineteen sixty-seven. You started to sell com, you know, sell comics to other Marvel readers and so forth. Was it just only in Illinois? Or no, it was around the country, right? Because mm -hmm. Yeah, whatever, if you had a, a letter printed in Marvel and it looked like you were uh, not some old weird dude, you know, but, but like a younger guy, then I would send you a letter with my little mimeograph sheet with my extras on it. Did they ever touch bases with you back like when you opened up your shop or go, hey, Gary, I remember there's there's a couple of guys like that. There uh, there are uh, Sam Sam Maroney out of uh, St. Louis. Sam uh, knew me from back in the in the day, and uh, we're still uh, we still uh, see each other every once in a while. At, at, uh, when there were before the uh, the COVID hit, but mm -hmm. we would get to conventions in Chicago uh, once or twice a year. But there's you know there's still a connection there. It's a long, it's, 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 uh, it's a rare one, but it's nice when it, when it, uh, you, you actually meet someone, you know, it's, it's, it's fact, in fact, what you find out is how much of an impact you had on someone, um, back when I was first, uh, my, with my first stores and the kids that were there were, were 10, 11, 12 years old, yes. and, you know, and how they tell you today, how they just looked at you in awe. You know, and I go, <laughs> I go, but now they're, they're 50 years old and they're adults and they have their own families, et cetera. And, and I used to say, uh, well, I was in awe of you because you were, you were in a position to enjoy all the stuff that I wanted to enjoy when I was your age and there were no comic book stores. Only, you know, having a comic book store in your hometown um, had to be the greatest thing in the world. So because i know when you sent me your bio you mentioned in 1969 cars and girls lured you away from comics now did you stop completely reading comics during this time no i i, I couldn't stop completely okay, all right. <laughs> 
but I didn't collect as avidly, and I wasn't um, I wasn't as enthusiastic about it because it wasn't that cool with the girls. Okay, especially so, at that time. Yeah, <laughs> especially at that time. You're you're one hundred percent right. But some of the books I remember, you know, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, that came out, you know, by Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. I mean, that came out in like 70, I believe. And then there was Conan 1 and in, in Barry Smith's Conan 1 in 1970. So there, there were always, I would always keep an eye on, see what was out there. And if it was really something uh, different and something special, I always, I, I, I was reading it, sure. Okay. I mean, I'll never forget when, you know, Gwen died and then the, the Goblin died. I, I, that was, I was in college uh-huh. and, and, uh, and it was like, I couldn't believe what happened. And so I had to call my friend whose nickname was Spidey. And he was going to, he was going to Illinois State and I was going to Northern Illinois for college. And, and I had to call him right away and say, did you see what just happened? They killed Gwen, you know? I mean, it was like, the, it, was, it was the most momentous happening in comics up in, in, in my life up until that time. Mm-hmm. The death of Gwen Stacy is is it was a turning point in comics, uh-huh. and there wasn't another one of those turning points until until the Dark Knight in '86. Yes, and we're gonna and I'm listeners. I'm gonna say please remember this part. 1986. Me and Gary, we kind of know what's gonna happen. We are gonna talk about what happened in 1986 for you, Gary, which was incredible so okay so you're going college during this time if you don't mind you know what was your major at that time what were you um, i was uh, i was uh in the journalism department at in northern illinois but only because they didn't offer an advertising major at at, at northern illinois what they had was a journalism degree with an advertising emphasis and um but now you can get a marketing degree or an advertising degree, of course, but they didn't have that back in, in uh, 1970. So, uh, but I basically I have as an advertising marketing degree from from Northern. After you graduated from college, you know, what was your your career path at that time? Well, I I wanted to work for an ad agency and 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 uh, create you know ads and ad campaigns, um, but I I just had a hard time breaking in and a professor told me he said you know why don't you go to work for a daily newspaper and uh, sell advertising and then you can build a portfolio you can work with your clients to, uh-huh. and, and then maybe you can get into uh, to an agency through the back door uh-huh. and so I did that but I became a really good ad salesman uh-huh. <laughs> and so I started making a lot of money and in fact I went a trip and went to Hawaii um, back in 1976 I was the youngest uh, uh, winner of uh, of uh, the con- sales contest, <laughs> and so I got to go to Hawaii for two weeks with my wife, and, and it was still to this day an incredible trip. What a what a paradise you live in, Jason. Thank you very much. But the scenery has changed very much. I'm sure when you guys have you guys. I'm just going to jump ahead to one question. Have you guys been back to Hawaii since then? No, that was the only time we ever were here. We we went to Kauai and Maui and uh, the big island in Oahu. So we got to see four islands, and it was just a wonderful trip. And uh, got to play a little golf there, too. So mm-hmm. it, was fun. I mean, it was a great trip. I mean, but 
I can't imagine that it's the same 40 years later, 30, 35, 40 years later. But it's incredible because I'm kind of go to four islands at that time. It's incredible. Because normally it would just be, nope, you're just going to go for a Oahu for a week and that's it. But right. visit yeah. all four, yeah. four of the major islands. Yeah. So, so yeah. my career, my career at the time, you know, in 1976 was, you know, uh, I was an advertising salesman. I became advertising manager, in fact, uh, and I had a real career and all the benefits and everything else. But in 1976, 1975, I had, I was in a coin club, you know, the Northwest Suburban Chicago Coin Club, and. And I became the secretary because I'm the guy who always, I'm a communicator. So I would send out, I would clip out panels from comic books and I would say, you know, I'd put a big Hulk, you know, I, I, I would do a newsletter uh -huh. for the club. And then if you had to pay your dues, I'd have the Hulk, but Hulk will smash. <laughs> you don't pay your dues. Right. Okay. I mean, I'm doing this to have fun. But I'm I'm also showing that I'm a comic book guy. Yes. So what, out of the blue, at one of the coin club meetings, this guy goes, "Hey, man, you know anything about comics?" And I said, uh, "Well, yeah, I, I I've been collecting them my whole life." And he goes, "Well, I have a basement full of old comics, and I just want to get rid of them." And I said, "Well, I'll be happy to come over." Now at this time, I am not a dealer. I haven't been actively collecting, you know, I still read, but not, I'm not going to any kind of swap meets. I'm not doing anything. And I go to this guy's basement and he's got a ping pong table and it's got just stacks and stacks of, of 1950s and 60s uh, comics. And it goes all the way back to Uncle Scrooge number one and, uh, and, uh, you know, Showcase 22, First Green Lantern. I mean, it's just... And I, I look at all these comics, right? I don't know what they're worth. I have no idea, but I know that they, it's the coolest thing I've seen yeah. in, like, since I was a kid. And he, and he says, uh, are you interested? And I go, well, what do you want for him? He goes, a dime a piece. And I said, okay, I'll buy it. So yeah. I, yeah. it was, it was uh, 500 bucks. Five thousand comics, uh -huh. and I loaded them in my car and I took them home. My wife goes, "What? What are you doing, are you doing with this? What the heck are you doing?" I go, "I don't know what I've done, but I'm going to find out." So I went out and bought a, a price guide because I I had seen a comic book price guide in one of the bookstores that were my clients uh, for the newspaper. And I, it was the 1974 guide with Adam uh, or Joe Kubert uh, Tarzan cover. Mm -hmm. And I started looking up and I go, oh my God, this Uncle Scrooge book is worth, you know, $100 back in 1974. <laughs> and, and that was like a lot of money, $100 for a comic book. And so um, that got me, that got me, you know, interested in becoming a dealer. I didn't want to collect Uncle Scrooge, but I wanted to resell it at a profit. Uh -huh. And I'm going, if this guy has a basement full of comics, there's other guys with basements full of comics. And the next thing you know, I'm setting up at flea markets and I'm uh -huh. meeting different collectors and I'm very successful. I mean, it was really kind of cool. And, um, and I go, you know what? If I had a store, it would even be better. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, but you know, all the stores were in Chicago. 
all the sores, you had to get in your car or take the train from the suburbs into the city. And there was like two stores. Because my old friend Joe Sarno had a store. My old friend Larry Sherritt had a store. And, you know, it was a pain in the butt driving all the way to Chicago to buy comic books. Mm -hmm. I started reading again, you know, all, you know, I was buying all the marbles, you know, Howard the Duck number one came <laughs> in 1975. I started reading and, and, and collecting again. So I said, I'm not going to drive all the way down to Chicago anymore. Uh -huh. I'm going to open my own store uh -huh. if the right opportunity ever came. Uh -huh. So I played around the golf with my buddy Art, and we pulled up to this um, in downtown Mount Prospect, Illinois. We, uh -huh. In front of this, uh, there was a, a pizza place, uh -huh. and we were going to have a beer and pizza after playing golf. And there was this old building. It's like the oldest building in town. It's 100 years old, even in 1975. And, there had, and I looked in the window, there's some, like some antiques inside uh -huh. It was it was it wasn't even open. I mean, the guy had just abandoned it or something. And I told Art, I said that would be a perfect place for a comic book store. Uh -huh. So we went in and had beer and pizza. We come out and there's a for rent sign in the window. You know? <laughs> Honest to God, it actually happened just that way. There was a for rent sign in the window, and it wasn't there when I walked into the place by the time we came out an hour later there's a four rent sign and it was 250 square feet and it was 125 dollars a month so i took it so i took it and then i had to go exp explain to my wife that i just read to the store <laughs> what was your wife's and your family's reaction to opening up a comic shop now before i continue i want to let listeners know that basically like you said there are two comic shops in Chicago. Also, two comics were being sold in, correct me if I'm wrong, because like for me in Hawaii, they're being sold in pharmacies, spinner mm -hmm. racks, uh, sure. magazine shops. So like there's like the shops just dedicated to all types of magazines from sports to um, science fiction stuff. So what was your wife's and your family's reaction to opening up a comic store? Well, she, she was concerned that uh, because I had a full-time job yes. during the week and that now on the weekends I'm going to be at the store that I would not be doing family things. I mean, this was a real, obviously a legitimate concern. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but she uh, also said, if you think it's the right thing to do, then go ahead. And, um, and, and she has always been my biggest supporter uh, on anything that I've done uh, from selling my business to expanding it to everything else. She has been the, the, the real rock uh, of our family. And I, I, you know, it's one of the greatest uh, uh, benefits of, of, of being married to this wonderful woman for 40, almost 48 years now. So, um, but, uh, but it was, uh, it was fun. And let me tell you, there's nothing greater than opening your first store, your first, you know, with the, you know, you, you got it stocked up, you know, you got your, your convention stock uh -huh. uh, conventions. That's, you know, the swap meet stock yes. and you put it out in the store and then you put up some little signs and, and then you, you know, you, you, you hope somebody's going to walk in. Right. I mean, I read, I ran an ad in the comics buyer's guide or at the time it was called the, the buyer's guide. And, um, and uh, I let people know that, 
there's now a store in the suburbs and uh -huh. they didn't have to go all the way into the city. Uh -huh. And um, from that, uh, from that first, that first day, and I, I know you know what happened on that first day, but that yeah. first day was the greatest day that you can imagine a comic book store owner ever having. Okay, so I'm going to say, so correct me if I'm wrong, on September 16th, 1978 moondog comic opens up now don't say anything yet we're gonna stick because I, that's gonna be a whole different story <laughs> how you want to expand your business how, how, how did that come about well um originally i i had this little tiny store and i thought that this would just be fine you know I, it's a good way to get started and we'll see what happens mm -hmm. and so I had this little tiny shop and then within two years it, I had, uh, it was very successful and I needed more space. So uh, a, a store opened up across the railroad tracks about a block away um, and um, I rented that store, mm -hmm. and, which was five times bigger. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then we, you know, uh, I started, uh, you know, getting more stock and getting more customers. And, and of course, the business started to, uh, of comics, the, you know, they started publishing more comics, yes. except for, you know, the DC implosion that happened in 1978. I suddenly, you know, half of their books were canceled. And I'm going, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Uh -huh. but, um, but I opened a second store in 1981 in, in Schomburg, which was about 10 miles away. And, um, you know, next thing you know, um, things are starting to get to the point where I'm going to have to quit my real job mm -hmm. um, in order to um, expand any further. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I'll, I'll never forget our daughter was uh, four years old, four months old, four months old and I come home and I tell my wife I want to quit uh, the newspaper and I was the ad manager at the time I had a great salary and a great benefits and I said I'm just going to want to sell moon, you know comics and do moon dogs full time and she said if you think that that's the right move then let's go ahead and do it Oh, so I quit my job and then I started to work at uh, full time uh, at Moondogs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there I am on my first day of just working full time at Moondogs. And I'm sitting at my desk and there's nothing to do because it <laughs> was, you know, it was always somebody, you know, Vince uh -huh. Smith was our, was the store manager and uh -huh. he, he knew what was going on. And <clears throat> so I'm sitting there, I go, I got to do something. Uh -huh. And I'll never forget, I, I said, hey, Vince, maybe I can bag some comics. And he goes, well, we're out of bags. Uh -huh. I said, what do you mean we're out of bags? How can we be out of bags? And he goes, well, the guy that usually shows up at the monthly swap meet uh -huh. didn't show up this, this month, so we, didn't have, we don't have any bags. So I said, you know what? Maybe we can make our own bags. Uh -huh. So I I called up uh, in the yellow pages. I don't, you guys don't know what the yellow pages are, but they're ad, there's a phone book with ads in them. <laughs> I look in the back, and there's a company <clears throat> in the next town over, and they make plastic bags. So I call them up, and I make an appointment, and I go, see this plastic bag? It's got a comic book in it. This is We use these plastic bags to protect comics against storage and handling damage. 
And he goes, okay, how many do you want? And I said, well, I usually buy a thousand at a time. And he goes, hey, kid, let me tell you something. A thousand bags is like, takes me one minute to make. We don't make a thousand bags. We make hundreds of thousands and millions of bags. We're this big giant company, right? And I said, well, okay, how about 50,000 bags? And he says, okay, I'll tell you what. You want to buy a thousand bags. I'll sell you 50,000 bags at $12 a thousand. And I go, $12, I'm paying $30 a thousand from the guy in the monthly, you know, swap me. $12. I said, geez, if I'm buying them for $12, I can probably resell ones that I don't need. And I can start, you know, um, selling bags to other uh -huh. comic book stores. So the next thing I know is I'm, I bought 50,000 bags. And so I put in an ad in the comics buyer's guide and said, hey, comic bags, $16 a thousand, but you got to buy a thousand at a time. Yes. Next thing you know, I've got orders coming out of my ears. And, and I'm going back to the guy and I said, I need another 50,000. He goes, hey, kid, let me tell you how to work your business, okay? He goes, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you a million bags, but you don't have to buy them, take them all at once, but I'll, I'll sell them to you for $8 a thousand. And I go, oh, wow, I'm gonna make more money here. So, you know, and then we had the different sizes. We had modern bags and silver age bags and golden age bags and, and magazine bags. Now, I didn't invent the comic book bag, but I did perfect it. And what I mean by that is I standardized all the sizes. When you go into any comic book store today, you'll see modern era bags are six and seven eighths inches wide. Silver age or seven and one eighth, golden age or seven and three quarters, and magazine or eight and three quarters. I'm the guy who standardized all those sizes so that the boards fit in properly. And the next thing you know, I, I've got a, a a brand called Comic Covers. And you know, when I sold that business to Diamond in 1995, mm -hmm. um, I had sold 800 million comic covers by that time 800 million <laughs> but it's all because i had nothing to do you know, and, the guy, and the guy didn't show up for that monthly from the swap meet but and and i'm gonna say this is that again before before we started the interview like you said that you had this business mindset of your comic shop and for you to kind of going, hey, you know, let me let me do something around the shop. What do you mean we don't have this product? Instead of just kind of going out, instead of just uh, complaining about it, you did something about it, and now it, and now we have, like you said, you standardize all our bags that carries on till today. That's incredible. You know, I have. Yeah. You know, it's uh, what is it? Um, uh necessity is the mother of invention yes so, you know i needed bags so i had a, <laughs> i went out and found somebody and the next thing you know it's a business mm -hmm. <laughs> okay can you talk about your will eisner spirits 
spirit of comics retailing award in 1993. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, Will Will Eisner was a the creator of the spirit, of course, and 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 but he he was a businessman at the same time he was a comics creator. Uh, Will was smart enough never to just work for hire, where um, you know you would uh, do a, do the job for Marvel or DC, you got your check, and you didn't own any of the characters or any anything like that. Will Will knew that um, that was a a losing proposition <clears throat> in the long run. Uh, you might get a, a good paycheck, but you're not going to uh, share in any of the success of the characters other than the, the work you're doing for hire. So he was, he was a businessman who um, respected retailers. In fact, he's probably the only person in the comics industry that I ever met from any of the publishing end of things or the creator end of things who uh, truly respected what the retailer goes through. I should say he's the only guy. Dave Sim was another one who, Dave, Dave Sim, of course, uh, appreciated what retailers did. Um, but, uh, but, but Will told the San Diego Comic-Con, you've got the Eisner Awards. Well, I want to honor a retailer who is doing um, above and beyond to expand uh, uh, comics um, from the back alley comic book shop around the corner, down the stairs, uh -huh. um, out of the the the, the um, spinner racks, uh -huh. but and doing things within the community uh -huh. to 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 promote the the art form. Uh -huh. And um, I want to I want to uh, have this award um, and give it to people, guys, you know, as an incentive to go ahead and, and do these things to help promote to, to, to promote comics outside of the hobby. Uh -huh. And so that's what I was doing. I mean, yeah. my whole my whole strategy as a retailer was to bring comic books to a mom in a stroller. Uh -huh. What I mean by that is, in the family, the mom is the person who buys clothing, she buys food, she's, she's buying um, uh, all the necessities that the family needs. Uh -huh. She buys entertainment for her family. <clears throat> but mom isn't going to go down the stairs and around the, the back to the you know, dirty comic book uh -huh. store. So you have to bring those products, the pop culture products that we were selling, and not just comics, but the T-shirts and and the the toys and all of the stuff that goes with the the you know uh, comic books. You had to bring it to her. Uh -huh. So that's what I did. I I started opening in uh, Moon Dogs in high traffic uh, areas where um, uh, and and in closed malls with the idea that, um, <clears throat> you know, mom is going to buy this X-Men t-shirt. Mm -hmm. She isn't gonna go out of her way. She's gonna buy it at JCPenney, she's gonna buy it at Sears, she's gonna buy it at Kohl's, whatever. But she'll buy it at Moondogs too, if I'm there when she comes in to buy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that was my strategy and it fit in perfectly with Will Eisner's uh, idea of how he wanted to honor some retailers that were doing this. So lo and behold, you know, San Diego puts out a, 
Comic-Con puts out a <clears throat> call to, you know, show us what you're doing to expand uh -huh. comics in your community uh -huh. outside of the hobby and we'll honor um, somebody to win this award. Uh -huh. And I wanted to win it. I really wanted to win it, not for myself, uh -huh. but for my employees. I wanted them to feel that they were really a part of it, uh, a, an important operation and not just a comic book store mm -hmm. that they were working at, that they were working a part of a, of a truly um, uh, important and uh, organization. And so, uh, you know, I, I filled out all the forms and I did all the stuff and uh, lo and behold, you know, yeah, we're at the banquet and they, they mentioned and the winner this year actually they had three winners i shouldn't say i was the i wasn't the only one rory root my old friend at at uh, at uh, comic relief in san francisco uh, won that year and then uh, the beguiling out of toronto mm -hmm. they also won mm -hmm. but um you know i was i'm there we're at a table and you know all my friends are there and they they said my name and it was like the coolest thing in the world i mean i just like was in shock um but it was it's something that is very very important to me and one of the things that i um uh, i look at and uh truly am gra uh, gratified and, and very happy to have won all i can say is congratulations i mean that's a great business strategy of you know it's instead of just trying to focus on the comic book reader the comic book collector you're focusing literally the important you know the mom the important person in the household you know that you're focusing you know your business on them you know like, i mean if we're going to expand this jason if we're going to expand what we love and mm -hmm. you got to remember that there was so well you probably are too young to remember all this stuff going on in 1992 93 but there was comics were really high profile that you know the death of superman was yes. you know, i mean it was truly you know a remarkable uh, media event um yeah. and so there was so many things going on and 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 i was uh, i was determined to be a part of all of that uh -huh. you know i mean that was really important to me so so you know bringing uh comics to where the moms were i mean you know if there was ever a story uh if, if, if any of the media outlets tv uh -huh. Chicago Tribune, any newspapers, they wanted to to find something out about comics. They uh -huh. called me. You know, they called me because they knew that I I'd be able to to provide them with the information they need. We're gonna go into nineteen eighty-six. And this is a great year actually for DC comics. The Dark Knight Returns, The Watchmen, Superman, Man of Steel, basically um was rebooted, Wonder Woman you know, was rebooted. This is, you know, uh, the year after Crisis on Infinite Earths. But 1986 was a very important year for you. And it's regarding the Windy City Collection. Can you talk to our listeners about that? And you can go through the whole mm -hmm. history of when you, the day you open your shop on September 16, 1978. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny, there's, there's, there's really two distinct, important angles that you just brought up um, regarding um, comics. 
uh, one of them is paradigm shift in how comics uh, creators viewed uh, their uh, the the medium they were looking they were working in um, from um, you know four color fantasies to to uh, a dark and gritty mm -hmm. reality reality type comics um, and the other side is the uh, the business of of uh, vintage comics and and how um, that business started to explode and prices were 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 increasing daily uh -huh. you know and that uh, in 1986 <clears throat> you know it, everything changed for moon dogs and every comic book shop because we suddenly um were not places that were looked on as happy-go-lucky um kids places anymore uh -huh. you know it it and I'm not saying it's for the all for the better, okay? Uh -huh. I mean because <laughs> you know when everything became dark and gritty in comics, it 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 became less family oriented. Uh -huh. It became more targeted to males, uh -huh. um, teenage uh, to to uh, you know males. That, let, let's just say fourteen to to sixty. And uh -huh. in, in all of the comics, most of the comics, but the, the great, great majority of comics were were designed to appeal to that group. Uh -huh. That group wanted sex, more sex and more violence. Uh -huh. And they wanted it, you know, done right. Uh -huh. They just didn't want it. They just want, they wanted it to be done right. Yeah. And that's where, um, uh, the Dark Knight uh, Returns mm -hmm. and Watchmen started that trend that mm -hmm. to this day has never changed. Yes. Um, I mean, think about this. The Comics Code came out in 54 mm -hmm. and and from, you know, 1954 to, I don't know, was it 10 years ago when the code went away? I, I, I don't recall exactly, but when the code went away, mm -hmm. nobody cared. Nobody, there were, there weren't, you know, people saying, close that comic book shop. There's no more comics code. Our kids are going to be inundated with sex and violence. Uh -huh. And the reason why nobody cared is because everybody knew what the comics were. Uh -huh. They're just full of sex and violence. And, you know, uh, I'm not sending my little kid over there. I'm not worried about that. I mean, I could go maybe find a My Little Pony comic or whatever it is. But, but the, you know, the publisher said, you know, we don't need this code anymore because yeah. we know who our customers are and we know what we got to give them. Mm -hmm. So, so that we could probably talk another two days on the impact that Dark Knight and mm -hmm. Watchmen had. But when you look back in 1986 at Moondogs, yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, you had. And the first day I was open for business on September 16th, 1978, it was a great day. I, I, I remember I did about $400 of business. Uh -huh. and, you know, that was a lot of money in 1978. Uh -huh. Yes. And, and, I, and it kind of underscored, proved to myself that, you know, hey, this, this little comic book shop could be successful. Mm -hmm. So, so that was great. But with about a, an hour before, just about closing time, 
the the you know I had a little bell at top of the door you know it's like (laughs) and the I heard the door bell ring you know the the little bell was ringing and and in walked this guy and he had a a little briefcase under his arm a a little folder and and he had on a little a little cap like Mm kind of like a like a golf cap but it wasn't wasn't a golf cap but it was you know and he and he you know, he's a dapper guy. He was, uh-huh. he was, he was kind of cool. You know, he was a dapper guy. And he said, uh, I understand you buy old comics. Uh-huh. And I said, sure, what do you got? Let me see, right? And he opens up this folder, and there is Captain America number one, Red Raven number one, Superman number one, Batman number one and I am like oh my god mm-hmm. I can't believe what I'm looking at I cannot believe this and they are pristine I mean they it was like oh, I couldn't believe what I was seeing mm-hmm. and I said are they for sale and he said they will be once I once I get them all and I said what do you mean he goes and he tells me the story about when he was a, uh, his dad owned a newsstand, ran a newsstand in the, in, in uh, Uniontown, Pennsylvania's bus depot. And there was a mailman by the name of Andy Wallace. And Andy would come in to every day to drop the mail off and ask if there were any new first issue magazines. It could be comics, could be a ma- any kind of magazine if there was a number one, a first issue. And so, you know, Ben Stothart is the name of the, of the fellow who came into the shop. And, and Ben said, you know, well, you know, I got comics. There's a number one coming in uh, every, you know, every week. And he goes, save them for me. I want every number one. So this guy grows up, you know, and moves on with his life and the mailman retires at some point. Uh, And now it's 1975 and the Wall Street Journal is running an article, old comics worth money. You know, I mean, every, every newspaper in the country is running something about somebody doing something. I think it was Mitch Meddy, uh, spent $1,800 on an action number one in 1972. So there was a, this, this media interest in the value of old comics. Mm-hmm. And so Ben is like sitting in Arlington Heights, Illinois here. And, you know, he goes, hey, I wonder about that old mailman. I wonder if he still has all of those comic books uh-huh. that I used to save for him. So he had a high school reunion that he went to back in Uniontown, Pennsylvania in 1975, 76. And he's there and he goes in to the post office and says, hey, Andy Wallace the, used to be a postman here. And he goes, oh, he lives on outskirts of town. Uh-huh. And so he goes to the house and Andy has passed away. He's, his spinster sister was there, Anna, uh-huh. and Anna uh, said, uh, oh, you knew my brother? And he goes, well, I used to save comics. And he goes, oh, I still have all of Andy's comics. 
And so Ved goes, what do you mean you have them all? He goes, I have them all. And she had wrapped a bundle of maybe 10 or 20 comics at a time in white butcher paper and sealed them and kept them, um, you know, never read them or anything, but kept them because this was her family's legacy. This was her, her brother's hobby that he loved so much. And so he, he goes, well, I buy, uh, I want to buy them. I, uh, I collect uh, and, and they're worth money now. And so I'll be happy to, to buy them all. So he would come and visit her once a month mm -hmm. and she would give him a shopping bag full of comics and he never knew what was in there, but he would, they would come up with a price and he, he would pay it. And so there would be every, and every issue was a number one. And eventually there were 2,500 number one uh, first issue from Cap, Superman, um, Batman, Marvel Comics, number one, um, Brave and the Bold, um, Avengers. I mean, she kept uh, all the way up in 1964, 63, 64, there was a Daredevil, number one. Um, I mean, there, every single oddball title that you ever heard was saved if, if it were a, a first issue. Detective Comics, number one from 1937 was in there. Um, <clears throat> so he shows me these comics and I, and I, and is explaining the story and, and he says, I don't want to sell them until I get them all. Yes. Okay. So he gives me the comics and I'm take them into my house. Uh -huh. He happened to live in the same town. Thank okay. God. But, uh, cause I told him, I said, I have to inspect every one of these. I had to count the pages. I had to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, uh, check the, the page quality to make sure that, you know, if they were off white or, or white, if they were brittle, uh, that would affect the value. And so I, I went through every single book, uh, uh, did a complete write-up for him on each one and told him what the value was. In 1986, Jason, he goes, I have them all. I'm ready to sell. Uh -huh. And I said, "Well, I'm ready to buy." Uh -huh. And you know, and so, and so it was like, <clears throat> I said, he, he said, "I only want cash." I go, "You go, <laughs> you only want cash?" Okay, <laughs> so we made a deal. I said, "I I can't pay." Now you have to understand, there were he was getting other offers. Yes, he had promised me that. I had the first shot at them and, and, and he was a man of his word. So he came to me and said, I have an offer of $75,000 for everything. And I said to him, I go, I'm sorry, 70,000. And I said, Ben, I can't pay you $70,000 at one time, but if you sell them to me in, in uh, uh, segments, yeah. I said, you know, uh, installments, I can, you'll end up with more money by selling them to me this way. And so he said, okay, Gary, I trust you. So the first deal was 33,000. The second deal was 25,000. The last deal was the Marvel number one. 
and I paid uh, $12,000 for it. So at the end of the day, he ended up with $82,000 for his comics. But that first deal, Jason, I'm on his kitchen table counting out $133,000 in $100 bills. It was like a drug deal or something, you know? I mean, it, it was like the most, you know, scariest time I've, I've ever had in my life to have $33,000 in cash. But I owned all the comics and uh, the rest is history. I mean, that Marvel number one sold through Heritage in November of 2019 for $1,260,000. No, I'm going to, I mean, that's incredible. Um, I'm going to take a step back because, because I just want to clarify for the listeners because you didn't, did, did you hold on to that Marvel number one till 2019? Oh, thanks for it. Uh, no, I Because. Yeah. <laughs> See, I didn't collect these books. Okay, yeah. this was, you know, when I bought this collection, it was inventory. Yes. You know, I bought it for resale. Yes. I didn't buy it to keep. Um, should I, do I wish I would have kept it? Of course. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but I was building and growing a business. So it was inventory. Um, I bought that book for twelve thousand, and two years later sold it for twenty-two thousand. Okay. So that was a ten thousand dollar profit. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a record price at the time, Gosh. and you know I used those profits to and reinvested in my business and, and to to grow the business. So um, I don't have any regrets. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. I, I mean, in the sense of, you know, I didn't I didn't sell it for a million two, but. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, like the, the lady who uh, I told you, she thought I passed away Yes. Um, when she contacted me. Uh, I had sold her uh, Archie One and uh, a, a Betty and Veronica Annual. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I, I bought back a Little Audrey Number 1 and the Betty and Veronica Annual that uh, were, were from the Windy City Collection. Um, and, and I still have, I think I have two other ones that I just kept because not that they were valuable, but you know, one of them is True Comics number 80, which was a subscription copy and it actually has Anna Wallace's address on it. And so I, I kept that, you know, as a, as a memento. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and then I'm going back to the Marvel Comics number one, because like you said, you sold it for $22,000 a little bit later, you reinvested back into your business. But if I remember the newspaper article, every so often, if it'd be auctioned off, it, you get notified, right? To make sure that it was part of the Windy City collection. Is that correct? Well, yeah, here's what happened. Um, I sold it to a collector in uh, two brothers in Pennsylvania. And, um, and I had been in touch with them. Okay. So, um, so I knew they had it. And then when I saw uh, the book uh, in Heritage in 2001, uh -huh. uh, I got a call from them and they said, hey, these two brothers are uh, putting this book in. Is this the Windy City copy? And I said, if it came from them, it is. Okay. And, and so I knew that it was there. Uh -huh. and, and it was an 8.5 at the time. And um, and I think it sold for six ninety thousand. I, I believe I, I don't recall exactly. 
And then um, a couple of years later, I see the same the book again, and and it's uh, now it's a 9.0. And they had someone had cracked it out, pressed it, and got it uh, resubmitted it, and got a 9.0. Um, <clears throat> that sold for 200, I want to say, or 180, something like that. Yeah. And then it sat up until November. And then when it came out in November, I go, oh, that's that's my book. But they did not have it in a pedigree holder. Oh. The, the the sellers had had it, or the, the collector who had it, mm-hmm. had it for so long mm-hmm. that he didn't even think about, um, you know, he had it since 2003. So he didn't even think about the fact that this was the Windy City copy. And so when I notified Heritage, they immediately uh, had uh, the uh, had a reholder uh, with the pedigree label on it, and uh-huh. then uh, and and then suddenly uh, the cachet of it being the Windy City copy, uh, you know, just exploded, and everybody was was uh, so um, um, excited. Yeah. that this book this this book from this legendary collection was now for sale <clears throat> it happened to become a 9.4 too <laughs> i don't know how this happened yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it went from an 8.5 to a 9.0 to a 9.4 <laughs> i don't yeah i don't know either but but it's just amazing. Um, two things. It's just amazing that you know that you know you're probably one of the rare comic shop owners to literally see a Marvel Comics number one. What's more rare is to see one in a very you know in a very very good condition. You know? Oh, it's it's by far the best in existence. Yeah, uh, and the Mile High could be as good, but I've never seen it. But yeah. you know, I've heard that it, you know, the Edgar Church Mile High copy uh, could could rival it. But mm-hmm. you know, it's um, it's a it's it's a pop culture relic. I mean, it 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 shouldn't exist in this condition. But this is yeah. this is why this is why they do because you know this. A mailman wanted a first issue, and he didn't read it. He just wanted to keep it because he enjoyed collecting. Yes. And the sister decided to preserve it because she loved her brother. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, otherwise, if it's just little kids buying them and reading them and swapping them and rolling them up and putting them in their back pocket, you mm-hmm. know, you know, it's a it's a two point five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, Garrett, any any last words about the Windy City collection? Any any last words about? Well, that? no one, no one, everyone, everyone in our hobby, whether you're a collector or a dealer, uh-huh. would uh, could appreciate how I felt when I had the opportunity to to see all those books first and then to actually own them. And then as a dealer, you know, I mean, it was a very profitable deal for me. So, um, you know, it helped really grow my business, put me on the, uh, the map of uh, a, a, 
to a, a bigger degree back in the in the late 80s. Uh, it led uh, because I of that collection when um, when Sal Harrison, the retired president of DC, decided to sell ash cans. I was uh, in the position to uh, have them offered to me first. So you know, I mean. I became the biggest collector of Ashcan editions, and I did buy those to collect, as opposed to uh, as uh, for in, as opposed to inventory. And in my Ashcans, you know, I knew they were special. I knew that they were different, and um, I was there's that collector bug in you. I knew I'm the only guy on the entire planet to own them. And, and so that that's a, a feeling that um, is something that I, I just, uh, I think it's the coolest feeling in the world. I mean, I only have four left, okay, because I've been downsizing over the last 10 years. But I own the Superman ash can, the Superwoman ash can, Superboy, and Supergirl. Uh -huh. Those four ash cans. The Superboy and the Supergirl are the only copies in existence. DC does not have one in their vault. <clears throat> the Superwoman, DC has one copy in their vault, and Superman, they don't have in their vault. There are three other Supermans, though, that, but, but I am the only person on the planet that owns these books, mm -hmm. and it's the coolest feeling in the world Jason. it's the coolest feeling in the world now i'm gonna now i'm gonna jump ahead so the ash cans you're talking about now cor now correct me if i'm wrong was it was one of them that that um action number one um comic prototype was that the one yeah. oh, okay. yes that was that was my book uh i had i had uh, the action comics and the action funnies. Now, you know, we're talking ash cans. Maybe it's better that I kind of give a quick uh, description and, uh, of what an ash can is. An ash can is kind of a fake comic book. Just think of it like that. The publishers wanted to uh, secure the trademark for the title Action Comics. And so you know, the famous logo of Action Comics that you've seen on every Action Number One that you've yeah. seen, it's still being published today. The first time when that logo was created, the first time it was on a comic book was on this Ashcan edition. And, and so what they would do is they would make three or four copies. They would pay, put one with the trademark application and registration they would send that ash can to the library uh, to the U.S. Patent Office. Uh -huh. Now it's the Patent and Trademark Office, but back in the 30s, it was the U.S. Patent Office. Uh -huh. They would send the the registration application along with the ash can and said, "We're we published this." Uh -huh. Now they didn't really publish it because it's a handmade comic book uh -huh. that they made in the office. Uh -huh. They didn't go to press and publish it. Uh -huh. They wanted to uh -huh. eventually do that, but they didn't want anybody to steal the title uh -huh. in between the time they decided, let's come up with Action Comics. What a great title that is. Yes. 
but we don't want to actually publish action comics because we don't have anything to put in it. <laughs> so we want to protect it. So we'll make a fake comic book called Ashcans in the publishing vernacular. Uh-huh. And we'll send it in and it'll secure our trademark. Uh-huh. Nobody else can then use Action Comics. Uh-huh. But they weren't sure if they should call it Action Comics or Action Funnies. Uh-huh. So they made another Ashcan with Action Funnies. And then they went through the whole process of the trademark and blah, blah, blah. Now they never published Action Funnies, uh-huh. but it was protected. Nobody else could take it. Uh-huh. Now, one of the coolest ones was Flash. <clears throat> I owned the Flash Comics Ashcan, and Fawcett also had a Flash Comics mm-hmm. that they wanted to produce because what a cool title, Flash. Mm-hmm. So DC beat them to the patent office with their registration so that they had to change Flash Comics to. They ended up calling it Wiz Comics. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's right. Their original yes. title for Wiz was Flash. Mm-hmm. And so, so uh, DC beat them to the uh, trademark. And so they had to change from, from, uh, from Flash to Wiz. And so the history, the history of these Ashcan editions is so powerful it's Uh so meaningful it's so deeply ingrained in our hobby Uh that the idea that these books are still in the hands of of, of a few collectors me and a couple other guys that um that make them so so uh unique and valuable but you know they don't sell an action comics newsstand edition in 8.5 will sell for 3.25 million like uh-huh. one did last week. But the Ashcan edition sold for 204,000. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money, yes. but it, it's not $3 million. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and the reason that there's a difference in the pricing is solely because they're so rare uh-huh. that no market has ever developed for these books that, <clears throat> that action that sold for three point two five million sold for two million dollars three years ago. Mm-hmm. So you have a sales history yes. that a wealthy collector can look to and say, "Okay, I understand that where this book is going, and I'll be the first guy to pay three point two five million. But you know what? I bet you if I want to sell it three years from now, I can get five million for mm-hmm. it. But with an ash can, there's no sales history. Yes." Nobody understands, well, should I pay $3 million for this thing? Uh-huh. No one's ever paid more than $12,000 for uh-huh. one. So somebody, somebody did take a leap of faith, though, and, and went from uh, $50,000 in 2010 uh-huh. for the last action ash can, because there's two on the market. I once owned both of them at, at the same time. So someone spent fifty thousand in in twenty ten, but now someone just spent two hundred and four thousand. And what a blessing for my family that was. Yeah, but yes, but and like you said, that you're that rare collector that had it. It you know it's not. Yeah, I know. It's, I know. I know. It's not a re, you know. There's no re. There's no reprints. There's no facsimiles around. And you know to and um. 
you know, and just to our listeners, because of course this is an audio podcast, that that first prototype of Action Comics, it has the logo, but on the cover, it looks like, you know, some type of, um, you, you know, either... Like a ghoul with a knife. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, his left shoulder. A, you know? a, it's very pulp-like. Uh, it's like yeah. a hooded, a hooded uh, madman with a knife. Um, that originally, that piece of art was by Craig Flessel, uh, who, who was doing all the uh, detective covers uh, from number one to all the way up through, through the 20s. Um, he uh, had that originally was going to be the cover art to Detective Comics number two. But uh, Vin Sullivan, who was the editor, uh, thought it was, uh, or, and or Whitney Ellsworth, one of those two guys thought it was too gruesome for the, the comic book for Detective 2. So they, they, uh, they uh, rejected it. So they used it on the cover of the ash can. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, that was, that was the coolest thing that ever happened, I think, you know. Uh, like the cover to uh, the Superman ash can is the cover to Action Comics number seven, you know, the famous second Superman cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's Superman, you know, dangling a guy by his, by his uh, foot uh, mm-hmm. way above the, the, in the sky. It's, it's, it's really cool. And I got to show them off. I had I took the the uh, four Superman and the two action ash cans, and uh, at uh, Wizard World in 20, 2012 it was, and they uh, had their VIP cocktail party, and mm-hmm. and the whole idea was come and see these rare ash can yes. editions. And I got to show them off, and uh, you know that—that's cool. I mean, when you're a collector, you get to show off your stuff. How yes, cool oh, yeah, yes, yes. I, I, I understand. I really do. I, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Gary, I'm sorry. So, I'm going to keep moving on because, yes, I'm going to keep moving on because I'm going to try to keep this under two hours. I don't want to keep you too long. Okay, 1993. You had six stores, correct? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. But in 1993, you, Kim Howard Johnson, and Larry Mar- Martyr. Am I pronouncing his last name correctly? Larry Martyr. That's right. Okay. What you guys did was incredible. On September 11, 1993, and I have to keep saying 1993, you, that was the first airing of Moondog's pop culture radio hour it played on now i'm gonna hopefully i got this correct my information correct wcbr 92.7 fm every saturday morning from 11 a.m to noon how did that come about well <clears throat> the moondogs pop culture radio hour was my what i wanted to do is bring the moondog retail concept across the country I, I was it was very successful putting it in putting my stores in enclosed malls, high traffic volume. I mean, in, in Lincoln Park, in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago, is one of the the toniest uh, areas, and it's the Tower Records opened their their first Chicago location outside of California, right there in the heart of of Lincoln Park, and I said I'm going next door to them. Because I mean, my customers are going to Tower Records, 
now they'll, you know, already. So now they'll come in and, and buy stuff from me. And yeah. the tower yeah. customers will buy stuff from me. I mean, it was, it was the perfect location. And, you know, and, and, and these stores are, are generating a lot of, of, of business. And I said, you know, I want to take that across the country. And, but I want the concept of pop culture, all right? And not just, not just back issue comics, not just comic book collecting, but all of the stuff that today we see, you know, in every convention that there is. Yeah. I wanted to do that in 1993. So I said, the, I think the way to do this is if we, if we can get on the radio and explain to people what we're doing and how much fun it is and, 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 and get people involved, it'll make it easier for us to expand you know, our, our retail business at the same time. So it was all coordinated. Everything was to work together toward the goal of expanding uh, you know, the, the, the Moondog uh, uh, empire if I, that that's an overblown word but i mean that was what we were trying to do create create uh, a, a business that was going to be national mm -hmm. so uh you know i had this idea of a radio show and i needed to have a guy who knew how to do radio and that's where howard johnson came in howard was our marketing director at moondogs mm -hmm. larry martyr was originally the marketing director at moondogs and um, Larry, of course, was the creator of Tales of the Bean World, and uh, it's it, it, it's still one of my all-time favorite comics. Larry moved on to become the the uh, publisher at Image Comics, and then worked for years for Todd McFarlane and McFarlane Toys. Um, so Larry is like the real giant success story there. Uh, Howard has been um, has written books on the on on Monty Python. And uh, again, it's just a, a brilliant guy, so creative. And and then there was me, you know. I mean, I'm I'm trying to, you know, have this Moondog persona thing, you know, but you know, uh, as being somebody who um, just loves all this stuff and wants to bring people together, and uh, and and then hopefully this radio show will do it. So we started uh, in this little radio station in suburban Chicago, mm -hmm. and we had a nice following. I mean, people were always would look forward to the show and stuff. And I said, "Okay, it's time to time to expand into other markets." Yeah. So you know, I, I hired a uh, uh, a company who would uh, start pitching, uh, you know, Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, uh, New York, uh, L.A., every place, with the idea that hey you guys can um, uh, have, get a, a part of a, like a syndicated show. Yes. And, and you would, and, and it's Moondogs and, it, and it's comic books and it's pop culture and it's fun and it's unique and there's nothing else like it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, today people look on and say, oh man, you had the, you had the original podcast. Yes. You know? <laughs> and I, I never thought of it like that, but in this, in a sense, that's what it was. I mean, you know, we, <clears throat> the show, and you can listen to every show by going to moondogbuyscomics.com because we're we're putting up a new episode every two weeks. So there's three of them up there. We'll have a new one this next Wednesday or this Wednesday. I'm sorry, a week from Wednesday. But um, but so so I hired this company to to expand the Moondog 
you know, concept, Moondog's pop culture radio hour concept. And, 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 you know, they, they would talk to a program director in Detroit and he goes, so what is this? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's Moondogs. It's pop culture. It's comic books. And he goes, I don't get it. And that was really what was happening everywhere. We, people just didn't get it. Yeah. But the show was so cool because you would, the first thing we did was, uh, you know, just kind of say, hey, what's happening in, in comics uh, this weekend? And, and it would be a little banter between Larry and Howard and me. And then we would have uh, the uh, uh, comic scene magazines. Yes. Uh, uh, Maureen McTeague would come on and give us the inside information on, on comics uh, behind the scenes. And then we would have... Uh, uh, a market report from Wizard, you know, and what's the hot comics going on this weekend, you know, and they would call it, you know, we had Wizard Magazine calling, and then we would have the P&Q report with Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Casada. Uh -huh. I mean, Palmiotti and Casada, you know, they were hot properties back in the, in the early 90s, uh -huh. but they were also crazy rock star creator guys. I mean, and so it, these guys were so much fun and they would just tell us what was going on in their life. You know, it was like, okay, last night we, uh, we were at the Valiant party and, uh, and uh, Aerosmith was there and I got to shake hands with Steven Tyler and uh, share a beer with him and stuff. And I mean, you know, and then we would have, you know, a comic book guest and then sometimes we would have, and it could be someone from Stan Lee to Peter David to, you know, um, uh, any any creator. And then we would, you know, try to offset it with a TV or a movie uh, uh, star. And, you know, and, and that was our show every week. And it was great. I listened to him today and I go, my God, this was 10 times better than I thought it was. <laughs> You know, and I listen to him now. And I, so when, when you come to Moondog Buys Comics and you want to listen to the show, mm -hmm. you'll hear an intro from me. You know, like I'm putting one together for the fourth episode, yes. and it was the Superman show that we had. We had all three Jimmy Olsons on at that time. Okay. There was Jack Larson from the Adventures of Superman show from the 1950s. Yes. Then we had. Uh, Mark McClure, who yes. was who was uh, Jimmy Olsen in the Christopher Reeve Superman, yes. and then we had the Lois and Clark Super yes. uh, Jimmy Olsen. Yes, and had, you know, and then we had Mike Carlin, who was the editor of Death of Superman, yes. and we had Vin Sullivan, who was the original editor of Action, who ended up being the editor of the first Superman story. We had him on at the same time. These guys had never even met. So we have this wonderful history laden, um, uh, a show on, on Superman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's coming up uh, on, uh, let's see, today, it'll be on the 21st. You'll get a chance. April 21st. All right. Also, to listen to the Superman show. Now, Gary, before we continue on, because I've listened to all three episodes, I want to play some clips. So the first clip I'm going to play is a commercial <laughs> comic shop. So, all right, let me play this. Welcome to Moondogs. May I help you? I want you should meet my Goyle Poyle. Very nice to meet you, ma'am. Hi. Please 
Nice to meet you, I'm sure. Now, this Moondog's joint here, it's a popular culture store, ain't it? Well, I want you should loin poil here some culture so she can be more popular. She needs to get loined all that hoity-toity malaki like what spoon to use for dessert or when to clap at the right spots at the opera. I'm sorry, sir, but you're a little confused. You see, at Moondogs, we carry the Midwest's largest selection of popular culture merchandise. We sell comics and T-shirts, sports and entertainment cards, role-playing games, model kits, Star Trek and Star Wars items. Oh, you ain't gonna loin me no culture. Hey, wait a minute. What are you trying to pull here? You saying my Doyle ain't good enough for you to loin culture? Why, I oughta... No, no, please. Let me try and explain again, sir. You see... To find out exactly what Moondogs is all about, stop by the newest store in Ranhurst or one of the six conveniently located stores in the city or suburbs. Or call 708-806-6060. Moondogs! Not what you'd expect. Well, great commercial. I mean... At that, I mean, literally at that time, back in the 90s, you know, no one did commercials for their comic stores or even for comic books. And it's not, right. and you had, and if, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, because on the, on, because I've already, actually I've heard four commercials, in all three, in all three episodes, there were four commercials, you know, two to promote the store. One was to promote at that time the Ren Stimpy comics, where right. to buy them from. And then the Marvel, Ma the Spider-Man Marvel Masterworks. Yeah, absolutely. That was, was that your idea or what, was it a group idea or? Absolutely. Uh, it was, it was my idea because I, I chose the Ren and Stimpy because it wasn't hardcore comics. It was mm -hmm. the, you know, the animated cartoon and it was families. So there was, you know, I wanted to, to tap into the Simpsons kind of thing, you know, and, uh, that had happened a, a year or two earlier. And uh, so I chose Ren and Stimpy because it was, it, it was bigger than just the comic books. Uh -huh. And then I wanted the, the, um, the Spider-Man um, uh, Masterworks because that was uh, a high ticket item. Yes. You know, expensive and it would connect with the, um, the the guys who you know said you know i had those books when i was a kid yes. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and spend the 39 dollars for a, a hardcover and masterworks at that time were very affordable the hardcovers yeah right. yeah now, i'm gonna say correct me if i'm wrong because wasn't the spider-man animated series out at that time i can't i know it was sometime in the 90s I can't remember if it was at that time. I, d I don't uh, recall. I mean, the only Spider-Man one I remember is Spider-Man, Spider-Man, yes, whatever yeah, the spider can. Yes. But that was 60s. Though. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one I remember. <laughs> well, before, before we continue on, before we talk, because I want to talk about some of your amazing guests that you had on the show. You're, you know, I want to play one more clip of P's and Q's with Mr. T, and it's just a third, and it's a thirty-second. It's just a thirty-second thing, and just to set up listeners, I, I I think it's probably Jimmy Palmiotti saying that, hey, we're going to be at this comic book convention in Montreal or something. Bonjour, Howard. Bonjour, my little radio <laughs> friend. We're here in uh, in lovely downtown Montreal, Howard. You're where uh, the comic convention? I, I, let me get the plug in real real okay. quick, Howard. We're we're at uh, at Comic Fest. That's uh, tomorrow. 
in good old Montreal. It's uh, it's uh, let's see, Sunday twenty the twenty sixth tomorrow at the uh, Delta Montreal Hotel between uh, ten and five o'clock. It's four seventy five President Kennedy. Okay, there's our plug. All right, all right, yes, a plug. But this is Mr. T here, I, I, I can have a coming fast going on without Mr. T being there. Some of some heads we got the road. We were looking for you, Mr. Man, T. Man, there's something wrong. I didn't get no invitation. I didn't get my. All right, guys. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually Casada. That was. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> That was just not a, and Mr. T goes, hey, how can there be a comic fest and I'm not there? How come I didn't get my invite? What's going on here? And he was, and he was live in the studio. I yes. mean, oh God, it was crazy. That he, he's a force of nature. Mr. Yeah. T is like, he is, he is a, he's like Godzilla and King Kong all wrapped up in one. <laughs> so. Um, again, I'm just going to put a plug out before we, because I want to talk to you about seeing your amazing guests. So again, you know, um, the Moondog Pop Culture Radio Hour, you know, uh, episodes are released every two weeks. Again, you know, it's on the podcast platforms of Apple, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm going to encourage listeners, please check this out because it's time capsules. That's what it is. And, and for me, when I listened to that first episode that was, released on, again, September 19, 1993, because the next day was a Sunday. That was an important Sunday because Lois and Clark, Man of Steel was premiering that day, that weekend. Sequest DSV was also um, premiering that, you know, that Sunday. But more importantly, I remember Kim Howard Johnson saying, you know, hey, there's this, um, new late night talk show, um, this guy named Conan O'Brien. I, I, I kind of, I, I think, I think Kim said he knew him. He wrote some, yes, he, yes. he wrote some, you know, he writes for Saturday Night Live. And the funny thing that Kim said was, I hope he does well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. Now, you know, it was, it was such a crazy, I mean, here we are on the radio and we're talking about, Superman and Lo, Lo, you know uh, Lois and Clark and and how their tr uh, DC and Warner's I think at the time uh, you know what they were trying to do with the character to make it uh, appealing to a new generation and so um, and you know though we're debating like well what are you going to watch you going to watch Spielberg's new uh, show or are you going to watch you know Lois and Clark and, and every collector I mean. I mean, everybody had the same, which one do you watch? And, you know, and, and Howard would kept saying, well, Gary, that's what you got a, a, a video recorder for, you know, and I, <laughs> I still didn't know how to program one. Then I <laughs> do it now either, but you don't have to. Now you just have a DVR, of course. So. Uh, and, and also too, what I love, what I love about um, these past, um, these, you know, these, these past um, episodes is, it's all low tech because you guys didn't have the internet. You know, you guys, I'm, I'm sure you guys have to rely on notes that you guys have to like write to make sure you had your facts. Um, it's not over zoom, you know, because, you know, because, you know, like Maureen had to call in, um, you know, um, or Palmiati and, uh, and Cosada in the first episode, I think they're in California. So they have to get call in from more like, eight o'clock in the morning or something and you right, guys joke right. around like 
you know, so did you guys have a late night? And, you know, do we wake you guys up? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it was low tech in that regard. And, uh, and it was live. That was the other thing. I mean, you know, we, we could screw things up and, and have, you know, talk about dead time. I mean, but, but fortunately, you know, Howard uh, knew enough. Uh, and, uh, and then they had a, a, a technical guy there in case something happened. Yes. But, but for the most time, most part, um, it was, um, it, it really came off well. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there's always glitches. But when you got Mr. T in the studio... <laughs> Forget about it. I mean, it's, he, I just got more fun. We had Mr. T. Uh, we sponsored his appearance at an enclosed mall in, uh, in, uh, in, in conjunction with Mr. T and the T-Force number one, which is why he was on, on the radio show. And uh, I was friends with the owners of uh, Now Comics. Uh, and so... You know, I said, let's have him over. We'll, we'll do Randhurst. And, and so we had the center court of this enclosed mall, the same place where Santa Claus is like at Christmas time and the Easter Bunny. And we had, there, had a, there were thousands of people hanging from the rafters to see Mr. T. It was the biggest, the only thing that came close to uh, Mr. T was Jim Lee when Jim Lee came for Wildcats number one. I mean, that was, I think, every comic book fan in five states came to see Jim Lee that day. That was unbelievable. My job, uh, by the way, when Mr. T uh, was at, uh, at uh, the uh, appearance, you know, he was like, he's, he's, he's on all the time, okay? And so he says to me, Gary, he goes, I, I, I don't drink. I just drink water. And I only drink out of this gold goblet. <laughs> I mean, it's, this thing is like, and it's gold, and it weighs like five pounds. And I'm, and I'm trying not to slosh the water. And, I'm, and my job is to follow T up to the stage and bring his water without spilling it. Oh God, it was, it was crazy. Well, the main thing is, at least he said, you know, he doesn't drink; he drinks water. So, <laughs> right. Right, he's Mr. T. <laughs> okay, I um I want to talk about your amazing guest list because on the first episode you had Neil Gaiman that called in Todd McFarlane. Now correct me if I'm wrong. In future episodes, and also um and also um what was it oh, on that first episode? You also had Alex Hyde White, Mr. Fantastic from that infamous Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie on that um that first episode. That that's great. But then also to the other amazing guests for future, other amazing future guests that you guys had were Frank Miller. Um, you also had legendary um, entertainer Steve Allen, Audrey Meadows, and Bob Hope. Yeah. How did, how did you guys get those legendary, you know, those you legendary times? Joanne, Joanne Levine uh, was my uh, publicity PR person, and she... You know, I'd say something like, hey, I just saw Bob Hope. I think he's got a new book. He might want to be on. And she goes, okay. And so she would just like say, hey, we got this great show that yeah. we want to give Bob. I mean, Bob Hope goes, you know, his publicist would say, um, 
hey, I got you, Bob, I got you booked uh, on, uh, in Chicago. Uh -huh. Now, he, he might not know that he's on the Moondogs Pop Culture Radio <laughs> Hour. Okay, he might think he's on, I don't know, WGN or some giant uh, radio station. But, um, but she would make sure that, you know, we had a shot at all these guys by, by just going in there and being a bulldog, you know. But we had, uh, you know, Audrey Meadows was, I'm a big Honeymooners fan. And Audrey Meadows is, she was Alice on the Honeymooners. She was Ralph's wife. And, and so she came out with a book, uh, I think, Always Alice. I'm, I'm not sure exactly the title. But, you know, I watch every one of these. My wife and I are just huge fans of, of the Honeymooners. We even went to Honeymooners conventions and stuff. I mean, it, it, and so... So to have her on my show was so cool for me. And then at the end of the interview, I said, Audrey, I, I've got one thing I've got to tell you. I, I, just, I just want to be able to say this to you. Baby, you're the greatest. And, and it was that one moment because that's how they ended so many uh, honeymooners where Jackie Gleason would hug her and say, baby, you're the greatest. I got to say that to her. And it was the coolest thing in the world. That is really nice. Um, you know, just just for our, to our younger listeners, because like for me, I remember watching the Honeymooners reruns back in the eighties, and I think they were like on PBS. But nowadays, I think you know they're on Me TV. They're on right. you know they're probably on some streaming services. And then just for our younger listeners, again, um, you know, Steve Allen was you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, was the original host of The Tonight Show. You yep. know, um, Steve Allen and Audrey Meadows, you know, they, you know, they, they were married. So, so both Steve and Audrey, were, were they both on the show? No, they were on at separate times. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, we went, you know, Steve Allen uh, is just one of the most talented guys that ever was. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, um, you know, when you look back at, at television in the 1950s and 60s you know i mean the tonight show the format of the tonight show is still the same one he put together back you know 50 years ago or whatever it was you know, 60 years ago so you know um and and you know these celebrities yes you know, they want to talk about themselves mm -hmm. you know that's the good part about being an inter i mean look at you you're yeah. doing an interview with me i'm I'm having a blast over here talking about myself and that's how, and I'm not even a celebrity. So you can imagine how uh, these, you know, the Bob hopes, I mean, how many times he must've been thousands and thousands of times he was interviewed. He was 99 years old when he died. So, you know, uh, someone like him um, and you don't even have to um, like ask him questions. Mm -hmm. You know, you would, you know, it's like with Mr. T, I go, how you doing, Mr. T? And the next thing you know, 10 minutes later, he's still talking. And it was the same thing with Bob, Bob Hope, you know, he, he's got one one liner after another. And, and, uh, and it was just, it was cool. It was just, uh, it was, it was one of those things that you do with the idea that you hope it's successful, yes. you know, because if, if, if you can get this thing to expand and to move on into into other markets. I mean, how, you know, it, it, and now it's, it's like commonplace. I mean, it really was the first podcast when you think about yes. it. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
it, you know, be, yes, it's because you guys talked about everything from, you know, you know, from comics to movies, you had um, guest stars, you had, um, you know, um, comic book reports. I, I'm going to say the cool thing I loved about the show, listening to the show was um, Maureen would come on to give like the, these reports. And I think, and, and, you know, um, for me, what's really nice about Maureen coming on is, you know, um, she was also a fan. She was a female fan. And mm -hmm. you hear the excitement in her voice because I'm going to say that that last Mr. T episode, she's going, yeah, and Spielberg and Lucas, they want to do another fourth Indiana Jones movie. And, you know, and she sounded excited. You know, it, it was just great, you know. Yeah. She was a real she was a real professional. I, I don't know what she's doing now, but she was she mm -hmm. was uh, she worked for DC and she worked for Wizard or, or a comic scene and um, I think it's one other company, but I'm not sure what happened after that. But but she was a real professional. Loved her. There was a, an interesting thing. I don't know if you picked up on it, but John Warren, who was Overstreet's uh, uh, price guide editor was um, uh, the first guy that we used for the market reports. Uh -huh. and, and he mentioned just in brief, and we had like a, uh, there was a, when we digitized the show, there was a hiccup on something. So we didn't get the whole thing, but we talked about a, an amazing fantasy 15 that had just sold for $34,000. And John and I talking about an amazing fantasy that was a top copy. Now this was before CGC. This is before, right, yeah. you know, um, you know, uh, all of the incredible price increases that mm -hmm. we we know. That book was today would probably have been a nine two or a nine four, and it sold for thirty four thousand in nineteen ninety three. That same book today is a million dollars. So you know, a million bucks. Um, that was a big. That was a big sale. That I mean, people like really, you know, started to realize that maybe these Silver Age books can be just as expensive, uh, or uh, valuable, just as as valuable as the Golden Age. So, sorry, Gary. I'm going to try to continue on. Um, so, um, do you still keep in touch with um, Kim, Larry, and Joanne? I do. In fact, uh, Joanne, uh, Joanne and I just exchanged emails uh, yesterday. I got a text from Larry um, uh, two days ago, and uh, Kim and uh, Howard Johnson and I still, well, you know, he's part of the whole mythos here of what we're doing, and so um, with the Pop Culture Radio Hour, so I, I always keep him in the loop, and um, it's great. I mean, uh, it's it's nice that I, these friendships have lasted all these years. Yes. Um, do you still keep in touch with some of the creators that you had on the show? Like, you know, Joe Casada, Jimmy Pamiotti. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, back, uh, I sold Moondogs in 1994. Mm -hmm. I subsequently went to work for the company who bought it. And uh, that's a, 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 a huge story that we could take another couple of days yes. to talk about. But, um, but in 1996, that company that bought Moondogs that I was the president of um, went out of business. Uh, 
Mm. And so uh, from 96 until, you know, 99 or uh -huh. whatever it was, you know, I, I really kind of just bummed around a little bit. Uh -huh. And I, I, I was just buying and selling old comics, you know. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, but then when Comic Fest, you know, I became, I, I, you know, I had this suite of offices and I was buying and selling uh, comics vintage comics and I was you know still successful at doing it but I wasn't I wasn't really doing anything um you know waiting for the phone to ring basically and then um in 2001 I became um I went, or 1999 I, I went to work I was marketing director for a video game company called Incredible Technologies and they make the Golden Tee Golf uh, arcade game and Silver Strike Bowling arcade games and and I was the marketing director. And so I was really kind of out of the comics um, business because I was in the video game business. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and, but in 2010, mm -hmm. Comic Fest, or is it 2011, comic, the first Comic Fest came to Chicago. And all, the, they had a great guest list. Okay. And I looked at all of these different creators that were coming and I go, gee, Casada's going to be there. Palmiati's going to be there. You know, uh, Neil Gaiman's going to be there. And, you know, I haven't seen any of these guys in 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, talk to them. So my niece uh, was a, a fan. So I took my niece to the show and, and I went up to all these guys and said, hey, Jimmy, it's Gary. And he goes, Gary! And, you know, give me a big giant hug and then and Neil was doing a thing. We got to go back and see Neil. And, and you know, um, everybody was so nice to me. And it was a, a gratifying moment, you know, where, you know, I mean, people remember making, I mean, Neil Gaiman made four different appearances at Moondogs over the years. He, he was the guest of honor at the 92 uh, convention. Um, and, um, you know, it was probably the greatest convention ever for a guest of honor who did so much to for his fans. Uh, I mean, he's he's probably the the one guy who did the most, uh, I think, to put the Chicago Comic Con on the map. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I, I I I I did keep in touch with them. I've, uh, but I, it's like anything else. I mean, these guys got you know things to do. You know, you know they're they're busy guys. No, but it's nice that, you know, that you're able to connect with them at Comic Fest and then for them to go, oh, my God, Gary, how are you doing? You know, and right, after all those years. Yeah. That is really great. Okay, so now, you know, so you, during the time that you're, you're like, you, you're a marketing director for the video game, were you still reading comics during this time? You know, just a few, but you know, like right now, the new comics have they they just really turned me off um, in the sense of how they look. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you stand in front of the comic book rack today, mm -hmm. new comics, and kind of blur your eyes a little bit, all you see is black and gray and brown. Mm -hmm. There's no primary colors anymore. And so, you know, when, I mean, when kids, I mean, if you look at the old Superman comics from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you know, they're all red, yellow, and blue. Uh -huh. 
okay? The primary colors that, that are attractive, you know, they, they, the, to the eye, you know, they bring you to, uh, your attention to what, they're, what they are. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, that's, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the printing processes are so sophisticated that they can do all these different uh, gradient, uh, uh, you know, from a, 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 a very subtle gray and, uh, and subtle blues and dark blues. I mean, they can do incredible things. Yes. And the art is incredible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? But there's just because you can do something, the technology allows you to do something, doesn't mean that it, you should do it over and over and over and give me something different, give me something new. And I just don't see it in today's comics. Mm-hmm. But I do love the new FF. I've been reading since it came out. I've got all 30 issues right here mm-hmm. uh, next to me. And I, I'm enjoying that immensely. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it immensely. Um, some of the things that I did read over the years, I, I liked that uh, World War Hulk. I thought that was pretty cool. I, uh, Invincible, the first uh, two two 24 issues of, of Invincible I liked. Um, but, you know, I just can't get into uh, the spawns and stuff anymore. You know, I read all the spawns when they came out and stuff. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's been around for 300 issues. I mean, that's, it's crazy. Uh-huh. It's, God bless Todd McFarlane that he can do that. Yeah. But it's really nice. It's really nice to hear that, you know, it's, you know, um, there's, there, there's still comics that you still love and read. You, you pick and choose, you know, that you still enjoy today. You know, that, that's really great. I'm sorry, Gary, I'm going to continue on because I want to start moving on to your website, Moondog Buys Comics. So when did the, so correct me if I'm wrong, you started the web, the website started to go up, was it a few months ago? Yeah, it's only uh, actually like six weeks, right? Oh, oh okay, okay. And uh, we started uh, with the idea that, you know, um, if you know me, uh-huh. Come here, I'll help you, um, you know, um, and, and maybe that help is I'm going to buy your collection, but it might be uh, I'm just simply going to give you your options on what you can do. Uh-huh. Um, like I got a, uh, an email through the website yes. from one of my old college uh, friends who lived down the hall from me in the, in the dorm. Uh-huh. And he goes, you probably don't remember me, but, you know, my nickname was Barbarian. And I had Conan posters on my wall, and I still have two copies of Conan One and a few other things. And I heard that you're buying comics. I mean, I was so like, it was like, I go, Danny Morris. Of course, I remember you. How could I not? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, it's so cool uh, to be uh, reconnecting with, you know, people who uh, I've known over the years. Yes. I didn't expect to hear from him, but that was, yeah. that was just really a, a wonderful uh, uh, surprise. Okay. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask, you know, can, can you, like, explain more, like, you know, because I visit the website. It's a great website. But can you talk to me more about, like, the, 
there's a link for sell to me and free appraisal. Can can you ex like explain to me what that is? Is it like, are, um, uh, uh, like you know, are you taking um, requests from people around the country, or is it more? If you're if you're a collector today, and maybe you're already buying and selling on eBay, uh, your doubles or you know things, maybe you're you know anybody that's listening to this podcast. You know, it's comics for fun and profit. I yes. mean, so, you know, so if you're already dabbling in buying and selling, you really don't need Moondogs, mm -hmm. okay, uh, to, to help you do that. Mm -hmm. But if you uh, bought comics, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, mm -hmm. and now you want to sell them, and you have no idea what, I, all you know, you may know is that the market is hot because mm -hmm. of all these, these world record prices that, that uh, yes. keep being um, uh -huh. uh, celebrated. So, you know, I'm I'm the guy who is going to be able with a very low key approach. Uh -huh. You know, there's no pressure. You know, everything is free. You don't have to worry about spending any money. If you have a collection and you just want to know if you have anything valuable, uh -huh. that's the first thing. You know, do you have anything good? And then what options, how is the best way to sell them for the most profit? Uh -huh. That's really where I come in. Okay. And I, I have been, um, you know, I'm, I, I work as people's agent uh, uh -huh. at times. And, and uh, I, I don't so much like consignment, okay. but, you know, I become, your, I can be your agent uh, and get you the best price for certain things if you have books that are valuable enough. Um, but, you know, most of the time, you know, I buy uh, the collections, you know, and uh, for cash and people, you know, are happy. They don't have to wait around six yeah. months to get paid. You yeah. know, I mean, it really comes down to, you know, um, what's the easiest way for me to sell at, for the most money? And that's what I come in. That's what I do. And then, like, when you, if, when you do, like, appraisals and stuff, is it just you or do you have someone that helps you? My partner in this endeavor is Pete Shishesny. Pete is Comics for Less. So if you go on eBay and look for C-O-M-I-C-S, the numeral four, L-E-S-S, Pete's one of the, the best dealers in the country. He's, his eBay has got like 50,000 know, likes on eBay as being a great dealer. Uh, Pete uh, is my partner in this. He's the one who helps me. Um, you know, I buy a, a Spider-Man number one. I don't need any help, uh -huh. but I get Spider-Man 101 through 300. What do I do with all those? Yeah. I don't. I don't deal in in um, in uh, uh, average comics. Uh -huh. I yeah. deal in high-end comics. But yes. Pete, he's got he's got customers for those. So Pete comes in and, and helps in that regard. Um, and it's been a, a wonderful relationship. We've been doing business together for almost 10 years now. Okay. And then I'm going to, no, correct me if I'm wrong. Again, the website is moondogbuyscomics.com. Okay. That's correct. All right. So um, I'm, I'm going to start slowly wrapping this up. Actually, I want to ask you one more question before I start coming down to the final questions and fun questions. Where did you get the nickname Moondog? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to that yes. same dorm at in college. And 
I used to um, have a lot of underground comics in my room. Mm -hmm. It was 1970. I was in the dorm in, in 1970 through 72. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had a lot of underground comics. And there was one called Moondog. And, and uh, there was also an album called Moondog, a record album. Um, and Moondog, the character was um, this blind street musician in, in Manhattan. And uh, he was kind of like a, a character. I mean, he was a character. I mean, he used to dress in these like Viking robes with a big Viking helmet on and a big beard. And, and he wore, had a staff that he would stand there with a little tin cup. And, um, and, and Moondog was, you know, I had the album and I had the comics. And the next thing, you know, the guys in the, in the dorm go, hey, Moondog, what are you doing? You know, hey, Moondog this and hey, Moondog that. And um, so when I went to open my first store, yes, uh, I, I had this nickname, right? Moondog nickname. So I said, let's call it Moondogs. Uh -huh. and, and that's how, instead of Gary's Comic Shop, it was Moondogs. But it all came from, you know, uh, Lou Harden, the original Moondog in Manhattan, his album. Uh, and by the way, they're doing a documentary on the original Moondog uh, that should be coming out this year. And um, I was a part of the Kickstarter uh, for that. Uh, okay. <laughs> I had to, come on. Yeah. And, um, and so, so you got the, the Moondog uh, in Manhattan and then you got the Moondog comic, which is kind of based on him too, but it's not the same. Uh, and um, I actually own the cover art it's it's uh, to the uh, Moondog Underground comic number one. I actually own the cover art to that. It's framed in my in my home. That's great. That, that's a great story. <laughs> it's, a, it's a true story. It's like it's gotta have comic books into it. I mean, it's gotta have comics and you know. I mean, this guy's more like uh, Gandalf, if, you know, a blind Gandalf. If, if, to get a visual of him, that, that's what you think of. All right. Um, so I'm going to slowly wrapping things up. So what are your thoughts about the MCU, the DCEU, making our love for comics become mainstream? Because we, well, I'm going to preface this with listeners that, because we've, we've seen, I mean, you've seen the original Superman on the 1950s in the TV show. I mean, I lived through the 70s and had to go through – Kathy Lee Crosby's original Wonder Woman movie, mm -hmm. Nicholas Hamilton's Spider-Man, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, that nineteen seventy eight Doctor Strange movie with the late Jessica Walters. And it wasn't bad. I still like that one. Okay, I vaguely rem all I remember was Jessica Walters was beautiful in that. That's all I remember. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. But, okay, so sorry. Yeah. But, you know, everybody has a golden age. Okay, this is this is the thing. See, I was fortunate. I, I think I was, you know, I, I was born in 1951. So FF1 came out, I was 10. Yes. I mean, how cool is that? Spidey 1 comes out, I'm 12. I mean, you know, and then, you know, you get Kirby's, uh, Kirby and Sinnott and Stan Lee's, you know, FF from, you know, uh, 44 through 60. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm 15, 16 years old. I mean, how perfect 
is my golden age, right? Well, the same feeling that I had then about these characters and the stories is being experienced by today's generation. It started with Iron Man. Yes. And and now it's gone through, you know, all of the Avengers and, and Cap and everything and, and Spider-Man. I mean, all of this, this is their golden age. They're getting the same feeling that I had when I was that age from these characters and the stories. Uh -huh. Now, it's a shame, in a sense, that the source material uh -huh. isn't as interesting to this generation. Mm -hmm. but it doesn't it doesn't uh diminish in any way how cool they feel about it because they're wearing the t-shirts they're buying the toys you know i wish they bought the comics but you know it is what it is when it comes to media you know mm -hmm. i mean people people absorb their entertainment in different ways mm -hmm. and now that there's so many different ways yes the comics themselves aren't, aren't aren't as important. I I watch all the movies, of course, and I you know I'm not so much on the TV stuff. I'm a little light on TV, but but how cool is it in the Doctor Strange movie when the realities are all just rolling around? I mean, it was just like I was watching Steve Ditko do it. I mean, it was like, my God, how cool is this? This is exactly how it should be. And, you know, and, there, and we all have those moments when we watch these films where we go, they got it right. Mm -hmm. They got it right. And to me that those moments are, they're just perfect. They're just, they're the things that, I mean, I go back to the first Superman movie, you know, the, what, you know, it, it was like so perfect for 1978 or whatever it was. It was just right. Was Chris, uh, Christopher Reeve, he, he knew what he was doing and the, uh, the, the director knew what he was doing. And, uh, you know, it, but DC, that was about the last time they got it right, except for a couple of, of, yeah. of movies. But. You know, I mean, look at Batman, you know, and, and with Michael Keaton, you know, I mean, that that was a good movie. That yes. was a lot of fun. And then they had, you know, subsequently, you know, you had the the, uh, the other uh, uh, Dark Knight movies that were spectacular. Oh, you know? Yes. But, but for the most part, DC has, you know, just can't keep up with Marvel. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... What is the next bright future endeavor for you in the comics industry or in the comics business? Well, you know, I sold those two ash cans, you know, mm -hmm. quarter of a million dollars. And, and like I said, this is a, a true blessing for my family. Um, but, you know, I think I'm gonna, I, I think I'm gonna put the Supermans on for, you know, for, up for sale, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the super family. I, I, I think it's time, you know, um, in this day and age uh, to take advantage of the market because I've been downsizing. I just sold my Prince Valiant uh, collection of full page, uh, you know, Sunday comic strips. You know, I had 1500 different pages of Hal Foster art. Um, 
you know, I'm just kind of, I'm downsizing just like my, you know, customers are downsizing and uh, just to kind of simplify things. And uh, so Moondog Buys Comics is actually a, a part of my whole kind of downsizing, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm surrounded by things in my home office here. Uh, you can see behind me, there's, there's, that's the Mars Attacks Betty. Yes. That's, that's Betty back, Page. That's right. That's Betty Page, and that's the Mars Attacks Martian. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a takeoff of card number 23 from the original gum card set that was on the back cover mm-hmm. of the Betty Page's annual in 1992. And that's the original, and I own, I own that, and that's one of my favorite things in the world. Um, I can see the the is that so that's the original like your yeah that's the original uh, painting wow. and look how big it is too I mean it's yes. it's beautiful isn't it yes. yeah. so I got you know I I'm just surrounded by things that I love here and uh, but you know mm-hmm. maybe maybe these real valuable things it might be time to sell some of them I I know you said you're downsizing but it also sounds like it's you know, maybe it's time for another collector to enjoy them. To you, know. you are one hundred percent correct. That's exactly the approach I took with those action uh, funnies and action comics, as well as my Prince Valiant collection. I mean, I got the letter right here from the guy. I'll, I'll read it to you. This last letter, last paragraph. And at the risk of sounding a little bit cornball, thank you for being willing to let me take over your Prince Valiant collection. Isn't that nice? I mean, I know it's going to a good home. I've I've had these pages for 50 years, but it's going to a good home. Gary, I'm gonna start wrapping this up. I'm gonna do, let's do fun questions um, because I wanna wrap this up on fun questions. All right, what is your favorite takeout or restaurant near near your home? Um, Cantonapoli for Italian is, uh, run by friends of our family, and uh, it's the best Italian food here in the suburbs, Canta Napoli in Mount Prospect, Illinois. And uh, they have meatballs and a meat sauce that is unbelievable, just <laughs> completely unbelievable. <laughs> Can you promote um, your website again? Sure. Moondogbuyscomics.com. And, you know, you, you could be entertained there, you can be informed there, and if you need help in selling your comics, let me try to help you. Any last words to our listeners? I just thought uh, to be asked to be on your show was uh, just the, the most exciting thing that's happened to me. Uh, and so the, the opportunity to talk about myself for all this period of time, you are a very patient man, Jason, and I really appreciate the opportunity. It was really great of you to ask. Gary, I'm going to say, actually, the honor has been mine. Just thank you. It, yeah, it's just, it's been an honor. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you very much, Gary. Until next time, guys, aloha. Aloha. Everyone, and aloha, Jason. Thank you.